Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you're here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of Sober Gratitudes. I once was an active alcoholic, and after decades of failed attempts to control my drinking, I finally reached out for help. Letting others help me is why I'm here today, living a life I never thought possible. The suffering of my past was the catalyst I needed to find recovery and be receptive to healing. I created this podcast out of the desire to recover out loud and, with the help of my guests, show you how a better life is possible after addiction. Whether you have been here before or you are a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. Together, we can help those in need. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thank you again for dropping in today, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Sober Gratitudes is a podcast dedicated to spreading the hope in recovery from addiction. It is an inclusive show that does not promote or represent any recovery program. When my guests and I discuss what keeps us sober, we are referring to our own unique experiences. Our goal is to encourage and give hope to those who are struggling and need support. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. My name is Sarah, and I'm so grateful you're with me today for an incredibly important interview with Jessica Duenas. You may recognize her name because she's all over social media right now, subject of an incredibly important episode or article on NPR called Sharp Off-the-Charts Rise in Alcoholic Liver Disease Among Young Women. The article was published just days ago with a follow-up blog entry by Jessica herself on her own website called bottomlesstosober.com. I listened to and read her blog entry just written a few days ago called It Can't Just Be Me and knew I needed her to be on my podcast for you to hear her story and for us to discuss what, what it was like for her to be gravely ill and to now be experiencing a happy and healthy life in sobriety. I have to be honest, when my friend Nicole suggested that I give her a call when we were talking about this article, I was nervous to reach out, but then I realized how foolish it was of me to think that someone like Jessica would not take an opportunity to share her story and offer hope to people. I reached out to her, she quickly and graciously responded to my invitation and she, <laughs> poof, here we are in a nanosecond <laughs> recording, and I'm just so honored. So with that, it's my honor to introduce and welcome Jessica to Sober Gratitudes. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, it really, it helps me as much as it can help somebody else. I think, you know, staying connected to the disease and remembering like how close I could be just to going right back is really powerful for me. So I'm really grateful for that. I understand that telling our stories um, helps others, but it does help ourselves because we do need to remember mm -hmm. what it was like before we found sobriety um, because it's really, it, it's hard to be stuck in addiction, right? And then to oh finally gosh, yeah. get on the other side um, is, is just the best feeling ever. So, mm -hmm. so share with us, um, you were really sick. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, and looking at the pictures, like you showed in your blog entry on um, your website, the bruising, and I know the bloatedness. Can you, can we first just talk about like what your symptoms for the listeners to understand what alcoholic hepatitis is? And that's what it, that's what you have. Sure. Right? Yes, absolutely. So yes, yeah, so alcoholic hepatitis. It's a form of alcoholic liver disease. Um, the great thing is if you catch it early enough, the liver is a very resilient organ. And so it can heal un up to the point that you get to cirrhosis. At that point, it's like the point of no return. Um, thankfully, I hadn't gotten there yet and I'm not there yet today. Um, but basically it's just your liver is starting to scar. Your liver is starting to become fatty. And so the liver, it's an organ that really basically filters your blood. 
And so if your blood is not getting filtered, your blood is not clean, you know, essentially you're keeping all these toxins in your body. And also the liver is an organ that helps release fluids. And if you're not releasing fluids, they're also staying in your body. So symptoms can be, you know, swollen extremities, like our feet and our ankles, because we're, I was a teacher, so I stood a lot. And so my feet were always swelling. Like I could literally like poke my ankle and kind of see the indentation of where I had poked. Um, I also had swelling in my belly. I mean, you know, I'm not like necessarily a petite person, but like it was significantly swollen and, you know, I wasn't pregnant. And I mean, it wasn't like a pregnant belly, but you know, like I could just tell in terms of my shape that it was unusually kind of like plump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would wear clothes trying to hide it um, in terms of um, what it felt like though. Like that's the, what it looked like in terms of what it felt like. Um, I started to have really bad coughing fits and I later learned that was to retaining fluid in my lungs. And I was very fortunate that I never developed pneumonia because that's kind of like a prime breeding ground for it. You know, you have fluids in the warm, dark space, which is your lungs, a bacteria, an infection in there could have easily become pneumonia and killed me, which it has, it did actually to this woman, um, Carolyn, whose mother submitted an entry. It was the entry before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's called In Honor of Carolyn. Her mother described her daughter's death, and it ultimately was pneumonia that got her um, due to her alcoholic liver disease. Um, other ways in which I felt, I, was, I would run fevers randomly, like on and off. I was constantly throwing up bile, especially in the mornings. I would wake up and like, let's say towards the end, it was my summer vacation as an educator. So I was drinking really around the clock and I would wake up in the morning and violently like just throw up this vial. And then I would have to drink to kind of like ease the nausea. But like that first drink was both like painful and incredibly soothing in terms of just kind of like reducing that nausea and the tremors. Um, you know, I, I had tremors, very powerful ones, you know, they were in my hands, but also they would go through the, my body. Like I felt like my head was kind of twitching. And sometimes I was so scared. I didn't know what I was feeling. And I would like Google seizures all the time because I was like, oh my gosh, is this what those are? Um, it affected my balance. I couldn't necessarily walk straight either. Like when it got to its worst, like the worst days, I couldn't walk straight. I had really crippling anxiety to the point where the day I decided to go to the hospital was because I couldn't leave my house. I was that, you know, paralyzed. Um, other symptoms, like I said, fevers, the nausea, a lot of pain, internal pain. And that was obviously because my organs were starting to, like my liver was starting to get to a really bad place. Um, my lab work shows that. I put pictures up of my lab work, which is like crazy. Um, I felt really, really ill. And there was one time also that like I started to faint. And I just remember I was looking and suddenly darkness was coming over me and like I started to lose my balance. So thankfully I sat down and I had somebody pick me up and they were like, why don't I take you to the hospital? And I was like, no, no, I just need to go home and rest. And I got home and I ordered liquor because I knew if I drank, I would feel better. But I was at, you know, I was starting to lose consciousness, fear of moving. It was really bad. Like, the only thing that felt therapeutic at that time would be to like curl up in bed under covers with a bottle because I would either drink and fall asleep and not feel the symptoms or, you know, I would ease the symptoms by drinking. It was very physically exhausting, physically painful, and then psychologically also just incredibly, just really rough. I felt completely like tied to the bottle like there was this invisible chain that just held me to it you know and so um, I'm so grateful to now feel much better you know like I said the liver is a resilient organ um, and I'm very grateful that I stopped in time before it became cirrhosis so today I feel perfectly healthy my lab work is great um, you know but I felt sick like that for months and I avoided the doctor because I kind of knew what was going on but I didn't want to really go and face it. But then um, I had such a bad breathing fit that I went <clears throat> to the doctor to get like help. And I mean, you know, it was weird because she just examined, she just examined me and she's like, well, it sounds like maybe you're getting like bronchitis. So she just gave me bronchitis medicine. Um, but then she was like, let me draw some blood. And then when she drew the blood, that's when like everything came out. And I was, you know, and I still drank for like a month after that, basically. Wow. So 
That's amazing. And so you said you, you were really sick for a couple of months. Can you give our listeners um, an idea of like how, how long was your drinking career? When do you feel like you started to develop sure. these symptoms and how long were like the most severe symptoms for? Sure. Um, so my drinking began in college, which, so, you know, as a professional, I obviously went to college. And so um, my college years were full of the classic binge drinking on weekends. I also discovered in recent months, um, right before getting sober this time that I have bipolar disorder. And so, you know, classically it develops in young women around that time period too. Obviously I didn't know. And so what became the cycle of drinking and like on occasion, really bad depression, um, kind of just became the cycle. And so when I was partying or just depressed and drinking, that was predominantly weekends. You know, weekends were always a blur for those. It took me five years to finish college and I had to go to two schools because I dropped out of the first one. But that's what it was like in the beginning. Then when I graduated and I became a professional, I started teaching. Um, you know, teaching culture really invites happy hours. Like, oh my gosh, the week's over or the week's almost over on Thursdays. So, you know, I engaged in that behavior, obviously very, I was very excited too, because it was like the, the grown up version of college partying. And um, I remember somebody made a comment about me having one too many at the happy hour. And I mentally was like, oh, I'm never going to drink like that in front of anybody again. And so my drinking mentality shifted. I was not yet physically addicted. You know, it was a psychological like comfort and psych med at that point. Um, but when I drank with others, I drank whatever they drank. So I would watch other people's drinks like a hawk. And so as they finished their drink, I would drink mine. And so it was always me being mindful of what other people drank. And then let's say if it was a party setting, I would always bring some and have it in my purse. Or, you know, I would go to the bathroom a lot and stop by the bar on my way to the restroom and throw one back really fast so that I wouldn't get caught by the people I was out with. Um, so I did a lot of, I, I was just becoming this really sneaky person. Um, so that pick, that was going on for a couple of years. And I would drink also, like I started to drink daily, not that heavily because I also um, was in a relationship. He eventually became my husband. We're now divorced a few years, but um, he was not an alcoholic or an addict. So he would pay it, like he would, notice when I was doing too much and he would call it out. And so I would hide. So that kind of, that tempered my drinking for a few, excuse me, for a few years, I did have one incident where I accidentally like drank too much and he sent me to the hospital. So after that, when I was afraid of like losing him, losing the home, losing everything, I didn't drink for a year. Again, I had not been physically addicted yet. So I was able to just like stop drinking and like do a 12 step program and be okay. Um, but then when our relationship started to get rocky and I suddenly didn't care about losing my marriage, I didn't care about the house. Like as soon as I stopped caring, I picked up drinking again. And so it only was a matter of months before I told him I didn't want to be married. And, you know, as soon as I became this independent woman and I had my own apartment, the drinking, that was 2017, the drinking picked up because at that point I was like, nobody can tell me anything. I'm going to drink whatever I want because I have my own apartment. I'm paying my bills and the blah, 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 you know? So from 2012 onward, the drinking rapidly went from a pint, you know, it was like a pint of bourbon. And I always bought the cheapest stuff because I was like, I'm not, I don't drink for taste. I never drank for taste or quality. I drank for, to get drunk. So, you know, I would buy the cheapest stuff. Then that wasn't enough. And at some point, I can't remember exactly when I started to transition to buying like a whole fifth because I was like, well, that's more economical and I'm drinking it fast anyway. Um, and before I knew it, it was like the whole fifth. So then I would sometimes buy the fifth and like the little shooter things or whatever. Um, but basically for about a solid two years, I started to drink anywhere from a pint to a fifth or a little over a fifth every single day. And um, I started to, I became physically dependent. It didn't take that long before at that quantity, the physical dependence started. Um, I started noticing the shakes. I started noticing the slight, like the anxiety about not having it. Like I started to realize that if I was like, hmm, maybe I should stop. And I would have that thought and put it to the side. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't even last the day. I was like, no, I, I just want it. Like, I'll try again tomorrow. That mentality of I'll try again tomorrow really took over. And then I want to say like the sick, the sick, sick part really started like probably by the time my liver started to like feel it, um, was probably like late 2018, um, 
I, re- I mean, I remember like there were times like when I was named the Kentucky State Teacher of the Year for 2019, they named the Teacher of the Year like early so that you, I guess, have time to prepare for your year of service. So it was May of 2018 that I got named the Teacher of the Year for 2019. Um, my father had, my father died April 27th. I was in a relationship then where that boyfriend had been cheating for like a whole year and that like it came out like a week after my dad died. And then I was named teacher of the year like a week after that. So like I had like emotional losses like back to back, a parent loss, a romantic relationship that I was really hopeful for lost. And so my drinking escalated really quickly then. I think that's probably honestly where the shift went from like the pint to the fifth. I think it was like right around there. And um, I remember I was so hungover at the teacher of the year ceremony. And I remember actually, I was already having withdrawal symptoms then because I remember holding that trophy. It was a heavy trophy, a beautiful trophy that I still have, thankfully. And I remember starting to shake holding it and feeling really sweaty and uncomfortable. And obviously like I was in a mentally bad headspace anyway. And I remember being so anxious to get out of the ceremony so I could get home and drink. And so like I won the top honor of being an educator and all I wanted to do was go home and drink and that's literally what I did I went home and I drank and blacked out and I mean and then the blackouts became like a nightly thing every night I was blacking out um and so anyway so late 2018 and 2019 that's when I started to really get sick like I was physically dependent but then the sick piece happened then and so you know the sick piece would just be you know just not feeling good not feeling healthy I knew I wasn't healthy then it became my appetite was disappearing. Um, I really, like I would order food and then I would notice how little food I was actually eating. Like I constantly just had food left over. And initially I wasn't losing weight, but you know, alcohol has so many calories. So of course I wasn't losing weight to begin with. And then the summer of 2019, I really just started to lose weight in a weird way where like my stomach stayed the same But then I noticed my face, like the bloating disappeared and it was just like my face was getting thinner. And, um, and I already have kind of like sharp facial features. So like if I gain weight, my face doesn't necessarily gain weight that quickly, but it went from the swollen face to like a thin looking face. My limbs were looking really thin, but then like my stomach was still kind of plump. And I remember being like, gosh, this is weird. But like really quickly, my weight was just dropping, you know? And, um, the throwing up was starting to happen stomach problems like I could not be very far from the bathroom like I would have these sudden like oh my god I need to run to the bathroom so you know like really upset stomach vomiting all that stuff was happening and um again the shakes the nausea and by like I said by that summer I was drinking around the clock and when I was awake I felt so sick I had to just drink to go to sleep. And that's when fever started happening. And the coughing started the spring of 2019 also. Like I could barely breathe. I was always coughing really bad. You know, I got an asthma pump. I didn't do anything. Like nothing did anything. And the coughing was really bad until I drank. And so I realized that drinking, like I didn't understand how my lungs were connected to my drinking until I learned about the liver function and the whole like getting fluids out of your body. So by the end of 20, I mean, by... August when I had that physical and then September when I decided to get sober the first time, it was just unbearable. Everything was physically unbearable. Mentally, you know, mentally it was always there, right? Like alcohol had always comforted me mentally, but the physical symptoms were just getting so unbearable that I I just actually had to get like stopped because I couldn't function. You know, I couldn't get out of bed and being in you know, a single woman living alone, I had to pay bills and I couldn't go to work. So it was just like, oh my gosh, I need to like, I need a breather. And so I went into the treatment facility for a week and detox. It was really, it was incredibly rough. I can't imagine detoxing at home. And then from there, um, you know, I was sober for a few months. When my boyfriend passed away, I relapsed bad. And, you know, when people have these hokey things and programs. And so one of the hokey things is like, your alcoholism is doing pushups or whatever. Um, the point is I picked right up where I left off in terms of drinking like a fifth, but it really quickly escalated. But at that point, grief was involved. And at that point I stopped caring about living. And so I had suicidal ideation on top of grief. So I was drinking intentionally to kind of like take myself out. You know, I didn't, I was, I couldn't like bring myself 
honestly, I was never sober enough to drive to go buy a gun and kill myself. And so the easiest way to try to like take myself out was ordering alcohol with those apps that made it incredibly convenient to drink because it was COVID and like COVID was like encouraging drinking culture. And so I was hospitalized about eight times and several of those hospitalizations, I blew over a 0.4, but because my tolerance had gotten so high, it wasn't putting me in a coma. Like the doctors would be shocked because technically those are lethal levels of alcohol in your body. Um, and like I said, I was drinking to die. And so when I got into drinking to die mode, like I said, the volume of alcohol was insane. When I was drinking because I just was depressed and wanted it like escape my feelings and self-medicate, it was like a fifth a day. If that makes sense. It's like, you know, like suddenly the shifting, the mindset changes and the alcohol consumption like adjusts very quickly. So yeah, that would, I would say that would be my alcohol journey then. And then obviously since then, thank God, um, with the diagnosis of bipolar, with the exhaustion of realizing like, I'm not dying and I can't live this way. So I have to change everything again. That's kind of where I came to becoming sober this time. Since um, my sobriety date today, for today is November 30th of 2020. That's great. Congratulations. And <clears throat> I'm so grateful you. you're alive here to share your story. Um, Me too. Yes, this is incredible. And um, so um, I guess my question would be, were, did you, was there like a day, like, was there something very specific that brought you to like a bottom or <clears throat> that made you stop? Or was it, like, can you share about that? Sure. So by the time I stopped drinking in November, I had, like I said, I had seven, seven hospitalizations in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I was living. And then I was sent, you know, I literally was like sent to Florida where my sister lives. And when I ended up at my sister's house, I was okay, but I still knew I was, I had more drinking in me. I think the best way that I could explain, and I don't know about other people who have relapsed, I never believed that I had had my last drink all the times that I had gotten sober. I just knew I had to stop at that moment because I physically couldn't like bear it, you know? So every time that I stopped drinking was either, and since Ian, his name was Ian, when Ian died, I only would stop drinking because of an outside intervention. Like somebody would come and find me and take me to the hospital. I, w I was not trying to stop drinking then. Um, when I went to my sister's, you know, again, I got relief from the agony of drinking so heavily, but in my mind, I didn't feel done. You know, in my mind, I had not like processed the grief. In my mind, I hadn't like found any kind of, I was inconsolable still. And so when I drank that last time and I ended up in a hospital there for like over a week, that's when I got reevaluated and um, I was placed on new medications. And that's where the doctor was like, I don't know if you realize this, but you're actually bipolar. And he's like, you've been set off into this eight month episode because of the death of your boyfriend. And he's like, that happens. Like a bipolar person can be kind of steady without meds. And then if something triggers them, they go off into like their episodes. And like, for me, I went off into a massively depressive episode for, like I said, eight months. So once the medications changed, the medications changed at the end of October. Note, my sobriety date is November 30th. And, you know, psych meds do take several weeks to start to kick in. And that's literally like, I was like a textbook case of the medications were like, thankfully I was taking them, but they hadn't kicked in. And then when I did try to drink at the end of November, I realized like that escape wasn't quite there anymore. And so I decided to just like, at that point I was like, okay, like it was weird. You know, I was just like, this is not this is not helping me anymore. And I don't know if it was the drug interaction. I don't know what it was, but finally I realized like, I give up, you know, I, I'm done. Like, I can't like drinking's not changing. Like I finally processed somewhere in my brain that drinking was no longer a solution. Like mm -hmm. drinking had always been a solution for me. I could always escape. I could always escape. And then suddenly I couldn't escape anymore. And so it was either I'm going to, I have to either get my life together or I need to die. And I actually didn't feel like death at that moment. I didn't want to really die. So I was like, oh, I, I was like, I guess I got to change my life. Because, you know, sometimes like people will be like, wow, like you've done so much. Like, wow, you know, and I, and I'll be like, 
well, I was really miserable. Like in my head, I'm like, well, logically, I was just really sick and tired. So I had to stop and change everything. But then if I stop and genuinely process it and step outside myself, I can see how the whole journey is like, wow, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's, yeah, I would say that's about it. <laughs> okay, great. So, so how are you feeling today? You look, you're glowing. Like you look Thank amazing you. and very Thank healthy. You. And, um, so how are you feeling today? Physically, emotionally? Yeah, sure. So physically, I feel really good. You know, I feel healthy. Like I said, um, I now like I eat generally healthy. I mean, of course, you know, I've been in Kentucky for like a week selling my house. So I've been eating good Kentucky like junk, which has been great. Um, you know, I feel healthy. I'm like physically active. I, um, so physically, I feel really good. Emotionally, I'm still it's still a work in progress. It's really a day by day thing. Mm -hmm. Um, except like now if I have a bad day, I know it's really just a bad day. Like yesterday, for example, I got really frustrated. Somebody who came to look at the house had some stupid criticism, but I took it personally, of course, because I still struggle with how I process things. I mean, I'm a human. And so I took it personally. And then I got really resentful at my boyfriend for dying because he, you know, he was in recovery and he relapsed and his relapse killed him. And so I got really resentful at him for dying. And all I could think about was like, I would rat, like, I would give up all this that I'm doing if I could just have him back, if I could just flash back to like 365 days ago. And I was in such bad shape um, that by the evening I was like, I'm just need to go to sleep. And so I did escape it, but I escaped it in a way that wasn't going to kill me. <laughs> so, you know, I went to bed and I woke up today and I felt much better this morning. And so I feel like, you know, and it is grief. Grief is never linear. Healing is never linear. Um, but I think what I'm able to do today, because I've been like actively in therapy, I have been actively engaging in a recovery program. I, I have kind of like a toolbox. So if one thing doesn't feel like it's working, something else will. Like sometimes, you know, like in the 12-step program that I do, sometimes it's, it, it is enough on some days. On some days, you know, it's not. And so I rely on a therapist. And, you know, now I do have medications that kind of keep me steady. You know, and I mean, I didn't realize that bipolar really does require quite a few medications and it's okay. <laughs> you know, it, I completely accept that. Um, but yeah, so today I'm on a much better level. Like, you know, I know the viewers or listeners can't like see, but like if I were to draw a wavelength of what it used to be like, what well, I had to like self-medicate, you know, the waves, the crests and the bottoms would be incredibly high. Today it's, still they're still there but they're the range is much shorter and so the ups and downs are there but they're not so extreme to the point that they're like deadly almost or like the, yeah. that they induce the desire to like escape and die you know right I can identify with that I I know that yeah. image that I I was um in early sobriety I experienced high like uh highs and lows because I I don't have bipolar but I do have um severe um, depressive disorder and yeah. anxiety. And I have medication for that. And my medication is working properly. But I, in the beginning, before I was medicated, my ups were really high yeah. and my downs were really low. And then, but then I found with the sobriety program and all of my other, um, you know, the, my tail recovery program, like my ups and downs were more like a kind of like a, an uncooked lasagna, um, you know, the, the, you know, yeah. the lasagna, lasagna looks like when it's not cooked, Yeah, like the ups and downs became as little as that. And, and now it's, it's very different. So, um, this is incredible. So one thing I want to, um, say, so I was going to ask you like what tools are most effective for you when, and you shared just now that, um, you went to bed instead of picking up. Yeah you know, over some resentment. So what other tools are helpful for you if you feel like you have, I don't know if you still have a desire to drink or if that's been lifted or where you're sure. at. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think about alcohol. I don't desire it. Um, it's so funny, actually, like I had a meeting like with the, so I left teaching for readers or I keep saying readers for listeners um, <laughs> who don't know. I did quit teaching um, in December because like I said, I needed to move away. I needed kind of like a complete fresh start. And so now I've actually been having a possible like conversation about possibly doing educational consulting. So I can still impact learning in a positive manner without being in the trenches that are like triggering for me. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, in this meeting, <laughs> I was in this gentleman's office and I'm in Kentucky, right? And so the bourbon distilleries, 
as part of, you know, their service during COVID. I mean, obviously they provide bourbon, but they've actually been making tons of sanitizer, you know, because of COVID and obviously we're like a liquor centered state. And so the sanitizer though, of course, because they're advertising their alcohol still, the sanitizer comes in like handles and like fifth bottles. And I remember I walked into his office and I got completely thrown off when I saw like the handle. I was like, what's he doing? And then I realized it was just sanitizer, but it sat there on the table the whole time we were having this conversation. And I'm like, my eyes were drawn to it. Like, I wish there had been somebody counting how many times my eyes would turn to look at it. Did I want to drink? No, but I was highly aware of just the bottle in my presence. And so I don't, necessarily want to drink but it comes up it's my brain is still wired to have that as a default like you know I mean if you even look at like research on neurons right like there's connections that are built and so obviously like my connections to alcohol they're still there but at this point it's like I I see it I feel it and then I'm like nope that's not an option and so I'm building new neural connections literally to where alcohol pops up but then other things are starting to pop up too like the other tools and so one of the big ones for me is writing I obviously like you know I opened up I created bottomless to sober to give me an outlet um, both to kind of like carry the message also a way to process my grief um, but then also feeling of service because I'm helping others communicate their stories that otherwise who otherwise might not have had the opportunity to um, other strategies exercise actually does help especially when I feel angry exercise helps I have been very intentionally acknowledging when I'm prideful and stubborn and re like picking up the phone and calling someone. Um, you know, my sister is a wonderful human being and I know not everybody has like a supportive person in their corner, but you know, my higher power gave me my sister. So I have her and I'm going to take advantage. And so I can talk to her. She's a good sounding board and she's not a person in recovery. I don't need to lean on only people in recovery to have help. Um, you know, I have friends who will like literally just be brutally honest and I hate it. I hate it. I'm still really prideful. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, everything's been like fixed. No, I'm still really prideful. I'm still really stubborn. And I do need to be like brought down, especially as a bipolar person. There are times that I start to feel grandiose. You know, like there are times that like my head gets really big and I do need somebody to squash it for me sometimes because when I start to disconnect from reality. Like I genuinely do. And so having good people in my corner who know me well and they can call it, that's helped me too. And again, I know not everybody has that, but if you do have people who are willing to help, don't be too proud because I would have, my eight month like bender would have been drastically shortened had I accepted the help earlier because everybody saw me falling apart. And but, you know, if you block off help, you block off help, you know, so sometimes just opening up and letting people in can be incredibly powerful. But I really do understand how hard that is. You know, like I said, it took me eight months to let go. Right. So is it fair to say that you <clears throat> really couldn't get stopped, like stay stopped or get sober um, without, how, like, without the support of other yeah. people? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I for me, I could not get sober by myself. I tried, you know, he died on April 28th. And in my mind, I thought I was just going to drink for a few days really hard and then sleep it off and kind of like get back to it. That's what I thought when my father passed away that, I mean, I didn't you know I was drinking when my dad died. Um, but when my dad died, that's kind of, that was kind of like my grieving process, but I failed to remember my father lived a, a good, healthy life. My father did not have a sudden tragic death. My father died surrounded by his loved ones. So it wasn't a tragedy. It was the circle of life. When he died, it was not the circle of life, so to speak. I mean, it was because everybody does pass, but you know, it's that feeling of he died before his time. It was tragic. It was horrible. It was horrible. There's nothing like seeing, obviously I have addiction, right? But like, I don't see myself. I don't see what it looks like when I'm in, actively in it. I know that it feels like crap but it's terrifying to see somebody transform in front of you and you see them on that path to destruction and you feel completely powerless to help them. And I know that's how people felt about me, right? And so um, in terms of, wait, your question was about staying stopped. Oh, and being doing it alone. Yeah, I knew I couldn't do it alone. I just, I couldn't, I was too traumatized and I really, I tried, 
but I kept failing because when I stumbled, I just fell because there was no one there to hold me. You know, now if I start to stumble, there's someone who catches me before I fall. You know, if I let them catch me, that's the thing. It's almost like those trust exercises, right? Like they make you do like, an, I mean, I never went to camp, but I've seen videos where like you like throw yourself back and you know you can because someone's going to catch you. I feel like staying sober for me is that like the vulnerability of letting go and falling because I know I'm not going to hit the ground. Someone's going to grab me and like help me get back up. But there has to be that willingness. There has to be that trust. Right, right. Um, now, did you feel initially um, was, because I know for me, when I first got sober, um, I wanted what people had. They seemed very happy, very joyous, very free. I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me, you know, because I yeah. was miserable. <laughs> um, now I get it. Um, but for you, like, how quickly did you find, like, do you feel like in terms of trusting people that wanted to help you? Like, was that an issue for you? Or do you feel like that you were very willing to go ahead and trust people right away? Um, I trusted very, I still, honestly, in terms of genuinely trust, trust, I do still trust very few people like that. You know, I do feel like sometimes people can have good intentions, but they don't know how to best help. And then I sometimes like, for example, I mean, we're having an honest conversation, right? I don't always trust men. Um, I feel like sometimes, you know, I'm not going to be stupid and say like, you know, I know that people do find me attractive, right? And so I know that sometimes if I'm in a vulnerable state, some men with predatory kind of thinking, they see a pretty girl in a bad mental state and they try to be helpful, but they're not genuinely being helpful. So I've been in those situations a few times where it was like a guy that I knew and I thought, oh, I could probably trust him. And then they had ulterior motives. Thankfully, nothing ever happened that was bad, but like, I had to keep them away from me. And I was very scared about letting anybody in who was a man. Um, My sister, obviously, like, since day one, you know, my sister's 12 years older than me. And even when I was a kid, she always went to bat for me. So, like, I knew she was safe, 100%. My best childhood best friend, I knew she was safe. Um, But I had to be very careful about who I let in. And also the thing too, it's like, it's weird because being so involved in the community and having like a certain reputation, again, it it was just weird because not everyone who tries to come near me is genuine. And that's weird. But I think for a lot of us who get into these vulnerable situations and women, we have to be mindful of that, that everybody who comes near us is not always for the most sincere, like it's not always that sincere. So I've had to be very careful Like I don't, in terms of like my, but then it's funny because I say that and then I'm really open about my story. But the reason why I'm totally open about the story, whether or not I trust people is because now nobody could use that as a tool against me ever again in my life. You know, when I was kind of hiding my sobriety, it came up like one or two times after having a disagreement with somebody that they threatened to out me. And suddenly trusting somebody became a weapon, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So today, yeah. So today my recovery can never be used as a weapon against me ever again, because everybody knows all you have to do is Google me. And now, you know, so like no one can do it and say, if I'm applying for a job, nothing, my, my recovery can never be used against me ever again. And right. so that's why it's open, you know, like, but I don't trust everyone. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, you're early in sobriety and I, I get it. Like in the beginning, it's good. Like you're learning to live in a new skin and learning about yourself and what yeah. you drank and like boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. right? Boundaries. Exactly. So um, I'm curious to know, um, Jessica is, you know, I was having images of you holding that award that you got that teacher's award and you were shaking. Um, do P obviously like that's something that is in the article. I don't know if you talk about it in other blog entries on your, on your website, but have you been in contact with former colleagues, um, that knew, like that didn't know you were leading this double life? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. So my former colleagues, I mean, they're all great. They're wonderful. And I mean, there's been a few, you know, I taught for 13 years. So in the span of 13 years, I've had the privilege of working with amazing people in the different school settings I've been in. And a couple of them were in my boat. And so they came out and it was like, me too. Like, oh my God, you know, and sharing. And of course for them, like maybe their families know. Um, There was one actually who decided to get sober maybe like 
a few weeks ago and she was like, hey, guess what? Like, I'm sober for like a couple of days. And so there's been that connection with colleagues who like just kind of kept it. One of them, he is actually still actively drinking, um, but he's acknowledged it and he's reached out, like he'll reach out and he, he can gauge that I'm not judgmental. So like if he reaches out and he's kind of drunk, I'll be like, yep, I remember exactly. Like, I like, I understand, you know. Yep. So, you know, there's been a combination of that. And then in terms of colleagues who, like, don't have unhealthy relationships with alcohol and other substances, they've also been incredibly supportive. You know, I mean, they've always, you know, everybody does know my heart. Like, I think one thing that can't be denied has always been, like, my passion for kids and, you know, my dedication to my career. Obviously, like, if I'm named the top educator in the state, that's not for... I mean, that's, there's a reason behind that. Mm -hmm. And so I think really what happened with some of those colleagues, they were just shocked. A couple of them were kind of like, man, I wish I could have helped. You know, like, I think it is hard to like to see someone smiling in front of you every single day and to see someone looking so effective and functional. And then like, you think you know them well, and then they reveal that there's this whole other side of them. I know that that can be somewhat hurtful to some people who thought that they were in good standing with you. And then they're like, you never told me you didn't trust me. So I had some of that. Um, But really, nothing negative. I mean, there's a couple of them who like, don't really talk to me anymore. And that's okay, too. Like, probably I made them uncomfortable. Some people Mm -hmm. are uncomfortable with feelings and being so open. And that's okay, too. But um, really, the response has been overwhelmingly supportive. It's either been supportive or like relatable or just like, man, I wish I could have helped that kind of thing. Yep. So it's it's been good. And my kids all know, and I still see my students, like I actually, like I said, it's been four months that I've been consistently sober. I got to Kentucky a week ago and I took a couple of them out axe throwing and their moms are so excited to see me. Their moms are like, you look so good. And, you know, the kids, one of them made a joke because I did like a bad turn. And he's like, you're not drunk, are you? And I was like, no. <laughs> but, you know, like the great thing about it is, I mean, they're eighth graders and I hope that they haven't touched anything yet. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people in addiction actually have started right around this time, middle, middle school, late elementary. And my hope is that even if one day they do find themselves having these unhealthy relationships with substances, that they can remember they're not the only one in it. You know, and so like by them knowing that their like really loving teacher struggled with the same thing, at least they know Ms. Duenas did too, you know, and so like, and she's okay. I mean, hopefully for today I'm okay and I hope I'm later on. Um, So even just by being honest about it with kids, they know that they're not the only ones if they ever have any struggle, you know. I agree. I agree with that. A thousand percent. And that's one of the reasons why I am a big part of the sober revolution, the sober movement to end stigmas, build awareness to end um, the judgment and um, about alcoholism or addiction, that it's not a moral failing, that it is a disease. um, And then, you know, helping to end the shame for people to be more um, or less fearful of coming out. Um, knowing that there's people like you who are being very transparent and they feel like, okay, if, if she can be trans, if she can be, be open about her recovery, um, and her experiences and show us that she's in this really good situation now in her life, then that will only inspire others to do the same thing. So I really applaud you with that, but you know, it's interesting. I know you were, I just want to read, um, if you don't, if it's okay, like sure. a portion of your blog, the blog that you wrote just recently on the 18th and everyone needs to go visit bottomless, um, to sober. It's just an incredible, um, website with amazing information about, uh, Jessica's experience. But in the most recent one, um, you spoke of like how you don't know how you functioned so successfully while you were actively drinking and, you know, you were in active addiction and then you receive this award and you go on to say, I stop sometimes and I think, what the hell? The only explanation I can think of is the power of the mind and its determination. A mind fueled of shame and guilt is profoundly capable of massive feats to put up appearances. I was killing myself and yet I was showing up. 
So yes, all these conversations about women and their relationships with alcohol need to happen. And I'm so grateful that they are. I can only speak from my experience, but I will say a million times, it can't just be me. It can't just be women. So the more we have these conversations, the more people will have come forward saying, you know what? I've got that problem too. That is just such a powerful, powerful part of this particular blog entry because um, the more we have conversations about it and talk yeah. about it, the more we're normalizing talking about it. And um, I'm so grateful that you have <laughs> been on my pot. You've been here to share your story you. and um, I'm rooting for you to keep going. You know, you're, you're amazing. Your story's incredible. And um, I know that sobriety um, after the time I've had has, it just keeps getting better. So yeah. I'm excited for you and your, what, what, what does life look like for you now that you're, you said you're moving. So you have, sure. plans. yep. Um, yeah. I mean, life today, excuse me, life today. Um, it's hopeful, you know, like there was a time, like I said, last year I was completely hopeless. And so I was drinking today because I just kind of felt like, what's the point? You know, I, had the person that I was in love with at the time, you know, he died such a tragic death. You know, we talk about marriage, we talk about kids and suddenly all that was gone. And in my mind, I was like, no one will ever love me this way. I will never love someone like this again. You know, I was so, I was catastrophizing everything, which of course, I mean, it is a part of the grief process, but you know, mental health illnesses also can lead us to catastrophize things, whether you're depressed or you're a manic depressive, you know, like that happens. And today, I'll have my moments of like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. But if I journal, if I write it down and I look at it from the outside and I look at it on the piece of paper, I'm like, hold on, like, or I'll, I'll read it to someone, right? Like I'll share it with my sponsor. And she's like, okay, so you see that there, you realize that's just the fear. That's not real. And so that like today I can acknowledge that my thoughts, they're there. The unhealthy thinking is there, but I can step outside of it and acknowledge how it's not necessarily reality sometimes I have legit fears and concerns but most of the time it's not as bad as I think it is and so stepping outside of that on a daily basis helps me a lot um you know like in 12-step world you can call that writing a daily inventory right but like outside of the 12 steps that's just like journaling and like looking at processing what you journal um so that's a big daily thing for me I do practice meditation now and, you know, 12 step world, that's the 11 step, but in general, people do meditate and it really is to kind of slow down my brain and slow down that catastrophizing thinking and just step outside of myself. Stepping outside of myself is really helpful these days. Um, other things that I do, like I said, I, I try to eat a little bit healthier. I try not to get crazy about that. I don't know about other women, but for me, it's very easy to transfer alcoholic behaviors from alcohol to food. And mm -hmm. I did have an unhealthy relationship with food before I started drinking. So I am very mindful of the fact that I can switch one addiction easily for another. Um, so I do try to be mindful of that. I try to be mindful of the switching behaviors because I can do that romantically as well. Um, today, I do believe that I have a future. Today, I do believe that I could potentially be a parent should I choose to go that route. I firmly believe that I don't need to be gone from education just because I decided to leave my recent position, it doesn't have to look the same as it ever did. Today, I understand that if I'm sober, I can really do anything in the world. As long as I stay sober, like, you know, the options are infinite. So yeah, I mean, that's how I feel. I work, I have like a very basic nine to five. I like do sales for a tutoring company and that's all good, you know, <laughs> the pays the bills and that's so I get to do that. And um, now I just really, I do a lot of speaking engagements, you know, again, share my story, I write, and I feel like I, I lead a pretty simple, like things are boring today and that's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Well, it's interesting yeah. you should say boring because <clears throat> I was, um, you know, I always say, you know, that like life is actually not boring. It's really exciting. Um, but I get what you mean by like boring in the sense of, it's just calmer, like more, more yeah. peaceful, like not so chaotic. Routine. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's just kind of, yeah, but it's, but it's so freeing, you know, to be able to um, be sober. Um, so my, I guess my last question is um, what has surprised you most about sobriety? 
I think what has surprised me the most about sobriety is that if I can let go and stop trying to control every single outcome on the planet, that good things can actually just happen. I think I always believed that I was cursed. I always believed that like nothing ever good would happen to me. Because I mean, if you look at my history, like, yeah, I've had so many terrible things happen. I've gone through so many terrible things, you know, and I started to believe that my past was going to be my present and that my past was going to be my future. And I can't erase my past. I would love to switch it, but I can't. And so what I can do is make the best of it. And so now I realize like really positive things are happening. You know, like I said, I left teaching. And then a former colleague reached out who potentially might want to hire me to do some other kind of work in education. And I, I remember when he reached out, I was like, you do know, like you have seen the articles, you have seen the social media. And he's like, yeah, and I think you're great. I was like, what? You know what I mean? And so like things don't have to, the world didn't end because I got sober. The world is like, the doors are only just now starting to open. Like I literally, I thought I was losing everything, but I was willing to give up everything, right? I was willing to cut everything out for the sake of living a good life. And because I was willing to give that up for the sake of sobriety, I'm starting to see that things are actually coming back to me because of sobriety, if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just one more question too, because um, you, you're getting, um, you're, you uh, being in the article that was just published um, on NPR, um, getting a lot of attention and, and there, it's really fueled by the whole, like living a double life and the, in, the, the sharp increase of young women like yourself who are receiving these kind of diagnoses, you know, that they've reached a place of liver disease, something, you know, skewed skewed numbers of of their liver functioning because of how much they're drinking in secret so it's clearly something that's i feel an epidemic and that's my own personal opinion just what from what i'm seeing so what would you say to the person who is listening right now and feels like they're living a double life and feels stuck can you share with them simply like how it's different for you like what like what are the benefit like i guess to give them hope about like how you are today and what it, what the difference is like to feel the pressures of living a double life and what that was like compared to no longer living a double life yeah i mean you know i didn't realize and that's the thing you don't know what you don't know so i didn't realize right. how how much it's not exhausting when you're when you like, I didn't realize how exhausting it was to live a double life yeah I didn't realize how living in fear and walking on eggshells was just so exhausting um now I really don't feel burdened by anything you know like yeah I I know that people what people see is what they're getting and it's really freeing to do that because I don't feel obsessed about like I got to make sure, like, if someone comes over, I don't have to, like, run through the house and make sure that something's out that shouldn't be out, like a bottle, you know right. what I mean? I don't have to worry about my breath. Like, if my breath stinks, it's because it just stinks. It's not because it's alcoholic. You know what I mean? Like, little right. things like that. Like, it's really, it just makes my life so much easier. Like, mm -hmm. even a bad day, a bad day sober is just still so much easier than, like, a decent day drunk. Because a decent day drunk is like, whew, I didn't get caught. Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. today, you know, so... It's just, it's just really freeing. And, you know, the other thing too that I want to be mindful of is I know I'm in a position of privilege where I could just come out publicly. Like, first of all, I already had a platform and now my platform's only grown. And again, like I knew for me, there would be no harm in coming out because, you know, I didn't bring harm to anyone. You know, I was really hurting myself and mm -hmm. I was hurting personal relationships. But, you know, thank God, by the grace of God, I never put a kid in danger. I never showed up drunk to work. I showed up in horrible hangovers because I was, making sure I wasn't showing up, you know, drunk to work. So I went through horrible withdrawals at work, mm -hmm. but you know, I knew that I was in a place where I could disclose my situation. You know, I know, for example, doctors, you could be a doctor and you decide to come out about your sobriety and suddenly the board's going to come and tell you to like drug test every day for five years, you know, like, so for certain professions, they aren't at liberty to just kind of come mm -hmm. out. Right. But the hope is that, you know, especially 2021 and like online meetings being such a thing, for example, 
you can get on a meeting and turn off your screen and still like connect with others. Right. You know, you don't have to, you really don't have to do it alone, no matter who you are at this point. Um, technology has made it so you don't have to worry about going to a meeting in person and someone recognizing you anymore. And so I just feel like you're, you don't have to be alone. You can tell someone your secret, you know, even if it's one person, you can do that. Yeah. And so it sounds like what you're saying, the difference is, is that where drinking in secret and having that double life was quite a burden, quite a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. And then, and then people are like, well, I don't want to get sober because like, I'm going to lose my power yet you actually gain more, like for me, my experience and what it sounds like you're saying is that you have more power, more control over your life because you're not at the mercy of this addiction. Um, right. and you're not enslaved to the addiction and that you have more freedom to not worry about lies, not worrying about like yeah. anything that you spoke of. So there's such a freedom that comes with recovery and you definitely are an example of that. And, um, I really, I just, want to thank you again. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say before we wrap it up. Um, I mean, no, I think like, I'm really glad that we touched on the topic of trust. I haven't, I had never talked about that with anyone else, you know, like the reestablishing trust piece. And so I'm glad that that really came up in the conversation. I think it is important to be mindful um, that some, like not everyone does have good intentions and it's really important. Actually, same thing in the rooms. Like if you do a 12 step program, be mindful that you're in a room with other mentally ill people. So like take their advice with a grain of salt and be mindful of that. You know, like we're not clinicians. We are all, we're sick humans trying to help each other. So sometimes a sick person's advice might not always be the best advice. And I've come to learn that too. Um, what else? I mean, yeah, the trust piece, that's very, very important. Boundaries are very important. So like I said, I'm super open, but I have very good boundaries today. I have very good boundaries, which is also really helpful like, for example, I'm in Kentucky, and there's a lot of people that, I mean, they're great people, but because it's either something that makes me uncomfortable or something that triggers me a little bit, I've just kind of kept to myself a lot, and that's okay. The other thing, too, actually, that I will touch on is, like, hope and romance, which is interesting. So, like, there is a, there's a special friend that I have, and, like, he actually saw me through the worst of it, and, um, it turns out that his father is, has been sober for 20 something years. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, as we've gotten closer, you know, like I've had these conversations and I was like, why do you even think, like, are you crazy? Like why, like there's times when I'm like down on myself, I'm like, why on earth would somebody even consider me as like a good partner, like in the future? And then he'll remind me, he's like, recovery is possible. And I'm like, you know, and it's because he has seen addiction tear his father up and then he's seen his father pick up the pieces and be this amazing like community person and like great grandfather now and like all this stuff and so he's like if my dad can do it I know you can and so I like I think we have to remind ourselves that we're not damaged goods that we have an illness and if we treat it like other people don't look at us as damaged goods either because it's really easy to look down on yourself and be like well I'm blah 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 you know, and that's been a really slow process. I have not been rushing into anything. And again, this person really respects my space and understands the healing process and knows that I'm grieving and they know exactly what I'm grieving. And they're just, they're just another really cheer, like they're a cheerleader, you know, and that's, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad you have that. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's wonderful to have that kind of support in and outside of our 12-step programs. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you um, too. So happy to have you on the show. If anybody has any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com or on my Instagram account, which is sober underscore gratitudes. And again, if you want to learn more about Jessica, you can visit her at bottomless recovery. No, I'm sorry. Bottomless to sober.com. And also I will, I will put in the show notes, um, about the article that is about her from NPR. Um, and I love NPR. So I was really excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a great platform. I was like, Oh my gosh. You know? And so Yuki actually, she knew me from last year when I, I had an anonymous Twitter account and she ended up following my anonymous like recovery Twitter account. 
we spoke on the day that he had, well, I think you, if you listen to the article, like you hear my voice and like, she interviewed me in April, 2020. And I was like, yeah, we're going to go to the park with the dog and blah, blah, blah. And I got off the phone with her and he had relapsed. It was like the freakiest timing. And then she got back in touch with me and it was like doing like a full circle. So that was really interesting. But yeah, like she's great. It's been really nice to be in touch with her like throughout the past year. That's wonderful. And I applaud her for, for shining a light on this. It needs to yeah. be something that is a focus of like, I think the media needs to do more with, um, it, you know, exposing the, these, um, the reality of what's going on with addiction, mm-hmm. um, addiction in, with women, you know, the pressures and the, um, the shame and the guilt that, that we need to eradicate it. So mm-hmm. Thank you again. And good luck with this. Thank you. Home. And, I know. Thank you. Yes. And I uh, look forward to um, connecting with you again soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. You have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.